I entitled this morning's message, Awaken to Judgment. And I want to begin with some thoughts about God. God does not uphold a code of justice that is outside of himself. Let me explain. If you were uh, a police officer, and I know that we have a number of them here, uh, if, if you're a police officer, let's say I was uh, a police officer and I was out uh, on the streets and someone broke the law in front of me, I do not take that personally. I understand that there is a law. I understand that I am to uphold that law. I didn't make the law. I am there to enforce the law. And therefore, I don't take it personally. If somebody speeds past me, I look and I say, well, there's some wisdom or lack thereof on what they're doing. And I would, by all means, carry out my responsibilities. But I don't get offended personally that someone broke my speed limit. But God is offended by sin because it's all personal. God is not upholding or enforcing an exterior code. He is the law. Everything about him that is good is the standard of justice. And anything that violates his nature, that we call sin. So therefore, every bit of sin, no matter what it's like, from the most significantly heinous to the most basic, Those are all a violation of who God is. If you hurt someone, you are not just hurting them, you are offending God. If you cheat and steal, you are not just pulling from another human being, you are violating the very nature of God and he is offended by that. Our thought life is not merely ours, it is also publicly displayed for the supernatural world and God knows and that will offend his nature if it is not in line with his word. We need to understand that sin is personal and that we don't just get to play around like it's no big deal. I believe that every single one of us is here because you are interested in revival Now, I don't mean necessarily corporate revival, although we're all getting on board there and understanding what that would mean. And man, our community would come alive and that would be fantastic. Uh, We have those thoughts, but, but I'm speaking more in terms of personal revival. I don't believe that you are content with where you're at. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Why in the world would you submit yourself under the word of God? Listen to some guy rant for a while, sit in the presence of the worship of the saints, hang out with other people in fellowship that agitate you towards growth. Why would you dare submit yourself to this environment if you are not interested in becoming different? We know the standard is Jesus. We know we are not there, but we know we want to move forward. But there is no revival without repentance. Repentance means you own who you are and what you've done. And there is sorrow about the violation against God. And you purpose in your heart, God, with all the power you give me, I will turn around and do it differently this time. Repentance is tough. You cannot have repentance until you have confession. 
And confession is owning up. We're going to talk about confession a little bit today. I'm afraid that in modern day society, certainly in my heart, and I believe in those that I know in this congregation, grace has obscured the seriousness of sin. We live in an era post-cross. And we live in a time where God gives you an awful lot of room to fix stuff. He gives you his word, he gives you conviction, and then lets you run for a really long time going, come on kids, you know your identity is in me, you know you want to be like me, so let's do this, let's change this, let's fix this. I'm not interested in coming in and just smashing people's heads together. That's not my goal. I want to give you freedom to say yes, Lord. In that grace... Because we hear phrases like what Stu prayed, which is, we have been cleansed of our sins. That our past is no longer hanging over our head. But we are indeed still responsible for the present. And for many of us, we allow a lot of garbage, we allow too much sin to be in our lives and it's obscuring everything. But we don't even take that seriously because in front of that is a whole nother mask of misunderstanding grace. The fact that Jesus Christ hung on the cross and took all the torments of hell upon his chest does not mean sin is less important. It means it's more important. Well, I didn't pay for it. Are you really going to use that phrase? Just because someone else was tormented for it means that it's not a big deal. Hmm. That's not right. Something's not good about that. God does not desire to bring judgment. God does not desire. He says that it is God's will that none shall perish, but all have eternal life. God is a good God. He does not want to bring in wrath. That's not his goal. But there is a limit to how long he's going to let you run. How do we know that? One of the most uh, sobering phrases in the Bible is, God will not strive with man forever. There's a limit. Why is there a limit? Is it because God gets to the end of his rope and he finally blows his top and, and you know what? He's got an anger issue. He should be in therapy. He's not. So he can't handle it. And then if you push him too far, he's going to snap on you. No, here's why. If you are a relatively healthy person, you put in boundaries when you can't take it anymore, right? So let's say you have a toxic relationship. You have a friend that's consistently luring you into bad stuff. If you are relatively healthy, you get to a point where you go, I don't think I can hang out with this person anymore without completely caving and compromising. So you put a boundary and say, I can't hang out with you anymore. That's relatively healthy. Super healthy people put that boundary in, not when they can't handle it anymore, but when they shouldn't handle it anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Where you look and you go, listen, I could handle all sorts of things, but I will not because that isn't healthy. That's God. God puts in limits around us and will snap on us for our good, for our discipline, for our best. He's not sitting there trying to just jump on everybody's case because he can't handle it anymore. It's because he won't. 
handle it anymore. There are limits to how far God will let you run. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Do not test God's patience. Do not test God's patience. I'll give you a bit of a warning, and it's this. For whatever reason this weekend, God has me pretty mellow, right? Now, normally the passage we're about to read gets pretty intense, and I'm still going to yell. I always yell. But in general, I'm pretty mellow. If you are waiting to be motivated or moved by a message to make changes in your life, please don't. I would suggest this. If the Holy Spirit convicts you on something today, you take it seriously from him, not from me. Because he might well be putting a marker down and going, hey kid, I've told you now about 400 times. You got about two more and I'm about to open up on you. All right. So just, just, uh, it's between you and God. It's not about adhering to the culture of the church is going to be mad. Who cares? Oh, Lance is going to, who cares? It's between you and God. He knows and he's watching. All right. Turn with me to Isaiah 63, one. Whenever you get to the end of a book, it's pretty nice of God to kind of give you a recap, right? And kind of go, well, this is what's going on. This is where everything's at. This is why it's all happening. And indeed, he gives that to Isaiah. We have just finished talking about even though Israel is in all sorts of discipline, and he's going to recap that. Here's why you're in trouble. I didn't want to be like that with you, but you kind of pushed me there. All right. But not only that, we also talked about the fact that even though they're in the middle of discipline, he has this beautiful, glorious future for them. We talked about the idea that for the Jewish people and, and we as the adopted family of God get to run in with them, there is a glorious thing called the millennial kingdom where Jesus himself will come and shut down the enemy and he will raise up his people. And we talked about it being at the end of the tribulation and there's all the purification time and it ushers in this kingdom where Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem. There is a reverse of the curse on earth. There's this blessed place. And then ultimately God nails down a few more things and we launch into eternity. We talked about all that. We pick up the scene Right after the tribulation and like a movie, like a drama being read before you, I want you to picture these words. This is pretty intense. It begins here in verse one. Who is this? I want you to picture a character coming in over the mountain, over a hill, coming towards the camera, coming into view and into focus. He's a mighty warrior. He looks exhausted. He has a sword hanging in his hand. And he's covered in blood. It says this. Who is this? Who comes from Edom? Edom is the southern portion underneath Israel, which if you wanted to use a general description for Israel's enemies, a lot of times the Bible uses Edom as a symbol. Now, why Edom in this particular context? Because it means red. Edom was Esau's nickname. Remember there was two boys, Jacob and Esau were twins. One was red and fuzzy. His nickname was red for the rest of his life. That's Edom. All right. So 
Who is this who comes from the red, who comes from the south, who's representative of Israel's enemies in crimson red garments from Basra? Basra was one of the greatest cities of Edom at one time, their capital. It means gathering grapes, which is a wordplay, a little ironic. He who is splendid in his apparel, meaning the warrior once was bright and shiny and ripped, marching in the greatness of his strength. He says, it is I, and it's the Messiah, Jesus. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah, as the narrator says, why is your apparel red? Why are your clothes all spattered? Your garments like his who treads in the wine press. Man, what just happened there? I mean, you look, you look like you're a mess. You look like you were just treading out the grapes. So yeah, maybe a lot of you remember Lucio Ball, right? If you remember Lucio Ball, that's, that's kind of, all right. It's, it's uh, a vat. Uh, n- later on, it was used in wooden buckets, but back then it was um, stone cisterns. You pour all the grapes in, you smash them all down, and the juice runs out a little side hole, and then you make your wine from there. It's kind of how they made their process of wine. But remember, if a guy did it, in the ancient world, dudes wore dresses. So you have a long garment that you're smashing stuff on, and it's going to get all over your clothes. It said... Why do you look like you just finished crushing all these grapes because you look awfully splattered? I have trodden the wine press alone. I didn't use any other nation to come and bring judgment against Edom. I stepped in and did it myself. I trod them, excuse me, and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, meaning I brought my necessary judgment. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. That's pretty rough. When I stepped and squished them, their juice shot out on me. Ew. Right? I just try to make stuff worse. That's why I'm reading it this way. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. If God's going to redeem his people, that means he's going to shut down the enemy. But notice the contrast. How long is his time of vengeance? What does it say? A day? How long is his redemption? A year? Do you see the discrepancy? God is not interested in being the mean, tough, let me bring judgment for a long period of time. He said, I need a day. Give me a day. And it's interesting when it, all this at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes in, it's called the day of the Lord. I need one day. I will bring havoc and I will wreck you and I can do it all in one day. That is not who I want to dwell to be. But when I'm talking about redemption, I'm talking about a long time. When I'm talking about the goodness I want to bring to you, I'm talking about years and years. When I talk about the glory for my children, I'm talking eternity. But when I talk about vengeance, I use a day. He said, I looked, verse 5, but there was no one to help. There was no righteous people to stand with me. I had to do this one on my own. I was appalled. 
but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm, my own strength, my own power brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath. Like a cup full of wrath, I forced it down their throat and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now we look at this, this whole scene and we're like, oh, it's nasty and gross and all this stuff. Israel loved it. Why? Because they were the bad guys. Now, inside all of us, we have a heart for justice. We've been taught and trained by Jesus to love our enemies. And so some of this is a little tense for us. But in general, do you want God to go easy on Satan? Because Satan is the one who is consistently afflicting your children with cancer, tormenting them in the nighttime causing them pain and heartache do you want jesus to just say ah that's cool whatever no you want him to come with his full heat and when you read about him being thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever you go yeah that's how israel felt about this passage man now we get our enemies taken out finally we're now going to be redeemed because if you let them go they're going to come back and beat us up again i want you to remove the bully fully Judgment is real. Grace does not change that. We really think that God isn't going to hold us accountable. We really kind of bet on it. I don't think that we would do half the things that we do if we really thought we were going to have to answer for it. So now Isaiah, as the uh, narrator and author, he's like, I'm going to recount. I'm going to talk about the love of God because now that he's rescued us, let's talk about all the other great things that he's done. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Compassion. Old Testament, God's compassion. Number one descriptive word for Jesus in the New Testament, compassion. In the ancient world, in the Eastern side of things, they did not consider emotions to be held in the chest. We do. That's a Western thing. That's a, oh, my heart is moved for you. Why should your heart, which is just that little squishy thing, why does that hold your love? I mean, you got to think about it. That's a little weird, right? I hold you in my heart. It doesn't even look like the heart that you draw. I mean, it's, it's kind of gnarly looking actually. Why is that the seat of your emotion? Well, in the Western side of things, that's where we put it. And we think that's more romantic, right? Well, in the Eastern ancient side of things, it doesn't come from there. As a matter of fact, if you read this in the original language, you'll find out that compassion comes from where the seat of emotions is in your bowels. I love you with all my bowels. You're like, ew, that's just gnarly. Don't, don't, don't even say that. That's just gross, right? But, but think about how much more it makes sense that if you want to say, I love you from the all of me, the deepest part of me, why are you starting up here in the chest? That doesn't even make sense. Let's go down, right? Let's get down and grab all that, right? So it's this welling up from within. This, this whole, the deepest part of me wells up with emotion for you. Don't tell me that God is not emotional. 
well, God doesn't change. He's kind of, no, you've been swallowing too much Plato and Aristotle. That's not right. God is emotional and he, and he, his heart swells and he's excited for and he's with you and he cries and he does all these things with you. God is emotional. And these are all emotional terms used to describe him. We've just cleaned it up and sterilized it for the Western world. It said, for God said, surely Israel will, they're my kids, so they're not going to deal falsely. They'll obey me, right? And he became their savior, protector, and rescuer. And verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Now that's a dad. Do you remember when uh, Paul the apostle wasn't saved yet? He's on his way to kill more Christians and God stops him. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute what? Me. Me. Well, let me ask you, moms, you're really good at this stuff. Dad's your natural protector. Let me ask you this. If I attack your kids, have I attacked you? Oh, yeah. Don't mess with my kids. In all their affliction, every time they were afflicted, I was afflicted. I entered in. I felt their pain. I walked with them. I knew their hunger. I knew their starvation. I knew their fears and their anxieties. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled. You would assume, right, that after all this goodness and loving and kind daddy stuff that they would walk with him, but they didn't. They rebelled against him and they grieved, meaning they saddened, broke the heart of, frustrated his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. And it carries on through verse 14 talking about, do you remember all the awesome things and the 10 mighty plagues and the, and the breaking of Egypt and bringing his kids out and they're like lost and wide eyed and, and he opens up the Red Sea and lets them go through on dry ground and devastates the Egyptian enemy. And then they're wandering through the desert. He's given them water out of a rock and he's given a miracle manna from heaven and he's caring for them all over the place. That God, we want that. God, verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Oh God, where is your zeal and your might? Where do you get riled up for us to restore us? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. You are our father. You're the authority. You're the one that runs this family. Verse 17, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people. Yeah, we held possession of our land for a little while. But our adversaries have now trampled down your sanctuary. Now remember, Isaiah lived before the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple was 586 BC. Isaiah lived almost 100 years before that. So he's talking as if it's already happened. That's called prophetic, right? Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. We're like all the other nations, like those who have not been called by your name, the Gentiles. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You ever heard that in a song? 
that the mountains might quake at your presence. God, show your awesome power and scare everybody. Verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways. There is no God like you. Would you take on the personal issues of your kids? All the other gods, the demons that are behind them, they all want to be appeased and it's all about them and, and they have to, you know, be bought off and try to be roused up. But you, God, you're interested in watching your kids and when they hurt, you hurt and you jump in and you get involved and get in the mix. God, no one is even like you. I always found it interesting that whenever in the Old Testament people wanted God to move on their behalf, they would always appeal to his sense of justice and they'd go, God, the bad guys are winning. Doesn't that bug you? And he's like, of course it bugs me. That's why it bugs you. Yeah, it bugs me. It bugs me a lot. And the only reason I'm not smashing them is because you're no better. So quite frankly, you're kind of in my way. So yeah, I don't want the bad guys to win. I don't want it to go like this. I am not interested in them being promoted and being prosperous and everything. The problem is, is I'm trying to teach you guys a lesson. If you walked with me, if you were near me and they were truly going to be the bad guys and not very similar to my kids, I might be able to handle it a little different. Verse five. Behold, God, you were angry. We're talking about why Israel's in trouble. We sinned. In our sins, we've been there a long time. You are going to save us, right? We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We're the clay. You're the potter. We're the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our sins forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people, your holy cities, those that you set up and you're excited about and you had your presence in. They become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, the temple that you allowed Solomon to build, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? God, we're wrong. Can you fix us now? Why is confession important? Here's the intriguing thing about us, especially in modern day. We as Christians like to just think good thoughts. We're not so interested in talking necessarily good. We're not interested certainly in carrying out good actions. We just want to think good thoughts and then we'll be good Christians. But the Bible tends to say, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. What is confession about? As a matter of fact, the Bible also says that if we confess our sins, 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in James 5, it says, confess your sins one to another and pray that you might be healed. Why all the confession? Confession, 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 confession. Why? Well, I don't know. Let me, let me play a little analogy with you. Ready? Exercise. Okay, I want you to think of your most heinous and embarrassing sin, your darkest sin. This is normally you don't think about this stuff in church, but just get it in your mind real quick right here, right? 
Okay. Now I'd like a couple of you to stand up and tell us what it is. Oh, look, it just changed. You can think it, but you don't want to talk about it. Why? You thought you were a monster before. Wait till you say it out loud. Now it's out there. You own it when it's out. Why does God ask us questions? Why did Jesus ask us questions? Jesus even said to his disciples, where am I going to get food to feed all these people? You don't think he had front loaded the whole loaves and fishes story that was about to happen? Why did he ask him questions? Because he's getting them to get involved. He's getting them to own it. Why do we need to say stuff out loud? Because you got to get it out of the darkness and into the light. You got to get it out of your head, out of your mouth. So now it's on the table. As long as it's still locked in the dark recesses of your mind, Satan can play with you and he can own you. But when you get it out on the table, suddenly there is community. I don't need to be talking to you people. I got it in my head. It's between me and God. No, it's actually not. Well, sure it is. I got my thoughts. You know what? No, you don't. It doesn't affect you, Lance. Yeah, it does. A couple weeks ago, I have a panic attack. I need you to pray for me. I need you to lift me up. And a bunch of you didn't pray for me because you don't think you're worthy because you got all this sin garbage in your head. You didn't even pray for me. You didn't even think it mattered. You sat that one out and let me suffer and you didn't even back me up because you got your own drama and your issues in your own head. Don't tell me it doesn't affect me. Of course it affects me. Why? Because my sin affects you. If I was to show you on the screen the dark secrets of my life, I would have a very difficult time leading this church ever again. I know that. You think I don't wrestle with that? You think it doesn't affect my preaching and it doesn't affect how I interact with you? You think there's not some subjects I try to back off from and all that? Yeah, because sin is always communal. It does affect us. It always affects us. God said in 65, one said this, man, I was ready to be sought. I allowed myself to be sought by those who didn't even ask for me, the Gentiles. I was ready to be found by those who didn't seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that's not even called by my name. Later in Romans, Paul said, that's the Gentiles. He's like, man, I ran around looking at the hey, Gentiles. I'm right here. Why? Because verse two, because I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people, the Jewish people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. My kids who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in pagan fertility rites in the gardens, making offerings on the top of their house to the moon gods, who sit in tombs consulting the dead, spend the night in secret places, who eat non-kosher foods and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. And then they have the gall to say, oh, you better keep away from me. Don't come near me. Don't get me unclean. I'm too holy for you. What? These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. You're irritating to me. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent. I will repay. What God, God's not here. Yeah, he is. Your sin's obscuring him. God's not near. God's not going to do anything. Yeah, he is. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, wait, 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 don't destroy it. There's a couple good grapes in there. There's a blessing in it. Yeah, I'll do that for my servant's sake. I won't destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. My servants shall dwell there. From the eastern coastal plain of Sharon, 
They will become a pasture of flocks and to the west side, the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But just as a warning, verse 11, you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for, oh, your little fortune gods of luck, fortune and destiny, I'll destine you to the sword. All of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. God will burn out the bad. So what happens if you are so entwined with your sin that it's part of your identity? So you have to consume you all? So you have to consume us totally? For those that have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is a deep cleansing that we only need our feet washed. You remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he comes up to Peter, right? Peter always has to say something extra. Peter's like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. This is totally awkward. You're not going to do a slave thing for me. Turn around, I'll wash your feet. Listen, man, you couldn't even wash my feet. I need to do this for you. Hold up. Well, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my whole body. Peter, quit being extreme. I've already washed you, but you've been walking in the world. So I got to wash your feet. For Christians, we still get sin on us, but it doesn't consume us. But that doesn't mean it's not important. What is the sin that's going on in your life right now? And you know what I'm talking about. Where God said, we've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Knock it off. I'm giving you chances, kids. Get this thing out of your life. Work it out. I've given you the power. I've given you the authority. You think you're in jail, but I did a jailbreak. I blew open the door and it's wide open. You're just not walking out. You're sitting on the ground and keep putting those broken shackles back on your wrist and pretending like you got to stay there. Man, you're tethered with a sewing string. You just snap, walk right out. That's why I died. Jesus said, I've come to destroy the works of the devil. I've come to set my kids free. That's what messiahs do. We bring out the captives. We smash the face of the enemy. I have set you free, and he who the Son sets free will be free indeed. So why are we so enslaved? I don't know. I don't know if we just bought this belief that, hey, we're always going to have sin, so we might as well keep that one. We like that one. Or maybe we, maybe we think, man, I struggled against that, and it ain't going anywhere. I tried that one about 14 times. So you're just going to let it rob you. You're cool just leaving it there. Well, you know what? I don't, I don't need to be all Jesus freakish. Yeah, you do. I don't know what it is, but I know it's got to go. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as you lay that upon our heart, Lord, now we have this weight and we need the power and direction to do something about it. 
Holy Spirit, we will never be more than what you make us. So as you set us free, Lord, allow us to walk in that victory. Allow us to transform into your image. Give us the power to take out the trash. We need you, Lord. We want to be pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray. Amen.